I'm Michelle Miao, the host of the Michelle Miao Show here for the Commonwealth Club. The program is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Happy Pride to everyone. And when introduce yourself and talk a little bit why you, uh, if it is a profession that you're talking about tonight, uh, talk about your field. And then, then we'll begin with Augustine and Ryan, in which I'll ask you about your story. So Dr. Ryan, how about you first? Well, thank you for inviting me. This is really an honor and so happy to be part of this panel and to really just talk about you know, what do we do and what can be done and hopefully talk about opening doors in terms of creatively thinking about having families. So I'm one of the physicians here at PFC and we have been here in San Francisco for, gosh, I've been here for 20 years now. So we've been here for quite a while and we've really been on the forefront in terms of helping create families and all kinds of families in terms of specifically for men to become fathers, we have created our egg bank here, and we have the only freestanding egg bank here in the Bay Area, which I can talk about more in a little while. But that's obviously a key piece and component to you know, helping create families. I'll take more questions, but this has been, I'm the medical director of the egg bank. This has obviously been an important piece that I've sort of babied along, so to speak, and uh, happy and proud to be part of that. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. Sam. Uh, hi, I'm Sam Chowdy with Northwest Surrogacy Center. Uh, I want to thank Pacific Fertility for uh, inviting me today. Northwest Surrogacy Center uh, is perhaps the largest surrogacy center on the, on the West Coast. Uh, we, we were started by uh, my parents 25 years ago. Um, my dad uh, has a, a pretty long history in helping uh, gay families build their families. So he started uh, almost 40 years ago uh, as far as doing adoptions. Northwest Surrogacy Center recruits surrogates from Oregon, Washington, California, uh, and Colorado. Um, those are all four surrogacy-friendly uh, states. Uh, where uh, both fathers can uh, get their names placed on the first birth certificate that's issued in that state. We also are an agency that's very focused on pre-screening surrogates so that when those families uh, are matched with surrogates, uh, they are as ready as possible to move forward at the fertility clinic. And uh, we might talk a little bit about the order of, of how all that might work uh, in, in a little while. Uh, we have 36 uh, total employees in our three different offices uh, that uh, really are focused on, on helping our families. So uh, I am really happy to be here, and uh, thank you very much. Deb, yes, your turn. <laughs> I'm Deborah Wald. I'm an attorney. My law firm is located in San Francisco, but um, I handle assisted reproduction cases all over the state, and I've been doing this work for almost 30 years. Um, I am a lesbian mom myself. Um, my sons are now 24 and 26. So I started the work of trying to figure out how to protect LGBTQ families with children when I was trying to figure out how to protect my own family and children, which was before a lot of the laws that exist now existed. And it's been a complete passion and I I'm happy to answer any legal questions anyone has. That's great. Well, thank you. And now, Augustine and Ryan, it's it's your turn. And uh, the I, I, this is perfect because we do want to hear, you know, the uh, the history um, and your journey in becoming parents. So we'll start with that question. When did you when did you want to be? Parents? Well, thank you, Michelle, for having us. And like I was saying earlier, we eternally grateful to PFC and NWSC for helping us in this journey. It's always been part of our plan to be parents. Ryan and I met back in 2012, so eight years ago. We started working with uh, PFC and NWSC, I think in September 2018, so about 18 months ago. And our daughter Sophie was born in March of this year, so probably... Uh, about 15 months uh, after we really started uh, the process. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure of it. I mean, I'm not a parent myself, but I definitely, I'm all, it's always on my mind. I'm always thinking about it, maybe for those who are joining us today and want to learn more. But like the, the, the process, 
right? When you say it from saying like, I want to be a parent. And then the next step in getting the information, how did you know? How did you both make the decision of, uh, did you just start to Google things? Did you know people or, and how did you stumble upon, you know, making decision to go with, with PFC or NSW, you know, those types of questions? We didn't really uh, shop around, as people say, um, because we wanted to really work with very established institutions who know exactly what they're doing, who've been doing this for a long time. It's, it's, it's a process uh, which involves a lot of emotional decisions that you have to make along the way, a lot of money and a lot of administrative process. And uh, we really felt that we wanted to work with institutional organization. There's a lot of folks doing this out there at various sizes, various levels of experience. And uh, I think it's a personal choice uh, who you go with, but we, we really wanted to go with experience. And so from that standpoint, there was no question that PFC and NWSC were you know, best positioned to help us. Clearly, PFC has been doing this for a very, very long time and uh, is the leading fertility clinic. And likewise, with NWSC, as Sam was saying earlier, um, they're, they're clearly uh, leading in their field. So that seemed to be a great combination. And I, I have to say, it's delivered everything we had hoped for and more. I think it's good to ask someone like that. When you go through this journey and you you're running with your emotions, you're talking to doctors, and you might not be thinking about the legal aspect right away. So at what point, you know, do we start thinking about you as prospective parents who are going through the journey where we've got to think about the, the legal aspect of becoming LGBTQ parents? Yeah, that's a great question, Michelle. And honestly, people connect with lawyers at different stages. I have clients who contact me um, when they're just starting to think about wanting to become parents and trying to figure out how to do that and wanting to know what clinics I would recommend, wanting to know what egg donation programs or surrogacy programs, or honestly, I have a lot of clients who, you know, gay male couples who have a sister or a cousin or a best friend from college who's willing to carry for them, or, you know, lesbian couples who have a friend who's willing to donate sperm or I've had a couple of um, folks come to me recently who are talking about exchanging. So, you know, the woman will provide eggs to the gay couple and the guys will provide sperm for her and her partner. So I see a lot of people in who don't need as much medical involvement or may not need a surrogacy agency or an egg donation program because they have people in their own circle. They're creating family in other ways. But the bottom line is... Nobody wants to go through this process of bringing a child into their lives and then end up not being that child's parents. The point is to have a child and know that, that you're secure and the child is secure, that you will be recognized by everyone as the child's legal parents. And, and in order to make sure that's true, you have to do things right from the beginning. You have to, you know, when you put, as you're putting the pieces together, you need to put them together in a way that leads to legal recognition of the people who intend to be the parents as the parents. And so that's the job of the lawyers. So it's often kind of an afterthought, but, you know, from my perspective, it shouldn't be because again, nobody wants to go through all of this and then find out actually their surrogate is the legal mother or their egg donor is the legal mother or whatever. So that's why the lawyers actually are really important is because we're the ones who make sure that you're actually the parents of your child. Right, right. Thank you. And so Dr. Ryan, you know, you're pretty much, I think the first person people go to is uh, thinking about um, having children, well, maybe, maybe the third, maybe the maybe the second is, uh, you know, a friend or um, family members, and you know, that we're thinking of doing this. But your role is obviously very important as you talk to prospective parents and you know what their journey might look like. So, do I have that right? Is that you know, people, you're basically kind of the, the very first person to be a part of that process and. You know, I'd say either I'm the first person or I'm the second person, because actually for 
men, they commonly will seek out the gestational carrier agency first. So they actually go and see Sam and his staff first before they come to me, because that's kind of like an obvious piece that they think, okay, I need to figure out who's going to carry my baby. Um, And then after they feel secure about that, then they may come and say, okay, so here's the clinic. Actually, they sort of both need to dovetail together, really. And I I would say nowadays, depending on how you want to sequence it, commonly it makes more sense to create the embryos. However, that's going to happen with whatever gamete source is. And then while you're looking for your gestational carrier, then secure your gestational carrier and you know maybe Sam can speak to this, but we normally want to have the embryos in place so that at the time that the contracts are in place with a gestational carrier agency and the GC herself, that we can then move forward in um, being able to provide the treatment cycle for the transfer itself. So it you know it can happen either way. But the important thing is just you know making then talking about the options and making decisions. You know so is the um, egg provider going to be you know a friend or a family member or is it going to be through an agency like our agency and is it that you want to use frozen eggs there are pros and cons to using frozen eggs or are you going to want to choose a donor who's going to do a fresh stimulation and work with fresh eggs again there are pros and cons to all of these options there may be different emotional ties to some of these options But whatever is decided, we move forward in that direction of eventually creating embryos. The other sort of decision piece other than, you know, what's going to be the egg source, it's going to, is also, if it's a couple, are both couples going to contribute in terms of sperm? In other words, are we creating embryos with sperm from both men, if it's a couple? Because that will also, you know, maybe potentially change what the options are and or how many uh, eggs one wants to procure from an egg bank or how many eggs we want to hopefully get if it's a fresh stimulation from an egg donor. And then the other choice or decision piece is, do you want to do chromosome testing on your embryos or not? I think in general for us here at PFC, we do recommend that chromosome testing be considered. And that is because at the time that we then move forward in doing an embryo transfer into the gestational carrier, we want to be maximally positioned for success because every transfer obviously will carry certain fees in working with that gestational carrier and having her go on her medications and all the things that she needs to do. And we want this to be successful and we would rather be successful with one or two transfers instead of four to six, for example. Those are usually, you know, we kind of have a general overview conversation about these general pieces. And then depending on who's going to be the egg provider and if it's a couple, if both men want to contribute. And again, depending on who the gestational carrier is, maximizing success with every transfer, then we talk about, you know, how is this now going to look? Sam, I think you're a perfect follow-up to that. There was a lot there that even for myself, was new, uh, and we'll ask some of those questions, like uh, I heard frozen egg donor, uh, well, what's the difference between frozen and, you know, fresh, so we'll get to that, but tell us kind of, yeah, at that, it sounds like actually uh, we, you might go to an SW before you go to a PFC. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think it's safe to say that most pe- people that I speak with want to have had a baby yesterday. So by the time they decide to do this, they're looking for the most time efficient way to do so. Um, and that's certainly not everybody, but I think it's, it's it, it, most people that is the case. So what we typically recommend is, is that the intended parents start with uh, us and the clinic uh, at, the, at about the same time. And it doesn't matter if you choose one or the other first, but that way what happens is they can go out, create those embryos while they're uh, waiting to be matched with a surrogate. And that is perhaps the most time efficient way to do it. It can take several months to, to create embryos. Uh, typically in our program, somewhere between three months and six months from the time that a family signs with us, uh, is, it's, is what it's going to take for them to be in the process of being matched with a surrogate. Uh, and that way, those things are kind of done as, as uh, uh, timely, as reasonably possible, 
without ending up in the other situation where you're matched with a surrogate and then you don't have any embryos to transfer to her, which is also not ideal. Um, so we usually want to wait till the families either have their embryos created or at least have a donor selected and the plan in place to create those embryos. Um, and, and that is perhaps the most time efficient way to do it. Thank you. We'll go back to Augustine. You both used a frozen egg donor and then obviously a gestational carrier. And so could you walk us through you know, the, uh, the personal story of how you decided to go that route? And did you know your gestational carrier or just, you know, you, you, you kind of you thought that, okay, we're going to go the biological route. And so we'll begin the journey from scratch. Tell us about it. Yeah, so we followed exactly the sequence that was described by Dr. Ryan and by Sam in that we worked on uh, getting the embryos put together first and then got matched with the GC. I think to, to Sam and Dr. Ryan's point, it's important to keep in mind that it's a journey for the GC as well. The GC has to go through a pretty intensive uh, medication cycle and so you kind of don't want to delay that it's uh, it's probably more appropriate to be ready on your end as a family with the embryos um we did go with a frozen egg donor because it has a number of uh, perks compared to a fresh cycle most um, importantly you know exactly how many eggs you get because you buy egg lots by lots of six so there is no uncertainty about the number of eggs that are going to come from the cycle, which is what happens with a fresh donor cycle. I think a lot of families end up choosing a fresh donor because obviously there's more options in the donor. Typically, there's less options in a frozen uh, donor program, but it's a very, very personal choice. Uh, for Ryan and I, we, we had a few criteria, but we weren't... Um, uh, very, very specific about our donor. What mattered to us is to make sure that it was a healthy donor and uh, that the process was going to go smoothly. So we actually used the Pacific Fertility Egg Bank um, and purchased three egg lots uh, from the egg banks. And uh, that was a fairly simple and straightforward experience. So when did you, uh, I'm just curious, that, that moment when you found out you were expecting, you were, of course you remember that moment, right? Like what you were yeah. doing, how, did you cry, did you scream? You know, we were um, weirdly um, uh, confident because having worked with Pacific Fertility Center and, and NWSC for several months by then, we really felt that we were in, in good hands and I don't know, we had a good vibe about it and it worked on first transfer. Uh, Ryan and I were in our house uh, in France actually and so we got a call in the middle of the night uh, from PFC and uh, just and just we, we just learned that uh, we were pregnant but we, we, we really had a good feel about it. So I don't know, we, I, I don't want to say we expected it but uh, we, we, like I said, we felt uh, very confident about it. And so then I would imagine the next phone call goes to someone like Deb, maybe, or maybe not. But, um, but Deb, once you know, you know you're expecting your family's form, forming and, and you're ready to have a conversation with someone like you, it, are there different contracts in place that you have to consider if uh, you are going the biological route as two male fathers? Um, and what, is it, what are those contracts? Yeah, so that's really late in the process to be getting in touch with a lawyer. So generally speaking, um, for a gay male couple who are having children, they're going to need, so they're going to need an egg donor. They're going need to need a contract with their egg donor most of the time. And then they're definitely going to need a contract with their surrogate, with their gestational carrier. So there's going to have been a bunch of co contracting that happens before that happy moment when they find out they're pregnant. Um, and then there actually needs to be a court action. When a woman gives birth, she's the mother, unless a court has said she isn't. So in order for the intended parents, even if she has no genetic connection to the child, when a woman gives birth, she's the mother. There's no hospital that is gonna take a baby that a woman just gave birth to and hand it to someone other than her without a court order. 
the lawyers have to, at that point, um, actually go to court. For, in California, we don't physically go to court. We send a lot of papers to court, um, but we have to prepare a full legal case. That is what is required to get a judgment from the court that says that the intended parents are the parents, and they're the ones who get to make medical decisions for the child. They're the ones that get to take the child home with them from the hospital, put the child on their insurance, all of those things. You know, they're the parents. Um, it also is critically important for the surrogates. I represent quite a few surrogates and, you know, they want to know that, that once they've given birth, they're free to be discharged when they're, they are physically ready to be discharged, whether the baby's ready to be discharged or not, and go home to their own families. Um, and that they're not going to end up with a bunch of responsibilities that they didn't plan for. So yeah, every once in a while, we'll get a call from someone saying, I'm at the hospital with my baby and they won't give the baby to me and, and they'll have forgotten to tell us that they're pregnant. Yeah, it's happened a few times. And so then we're in this crazy, mad emergency dash to try and get a judgment before the baby's discharged from the hospital um, so the baby can go home with the right people. So yeah, it's really important. Michelle, can I make just a comment here about the legal process? I completely agree with Deb that it's, it's about parentage proceedings and establishing your rights as a parent. But for us, there was more to it. First of all, it's often an opportunity to discuss with the various parties involved, the GC, of course, the agency, the fertility clinic, what to expect and, and work through some of the details that you yes. might not have otherwise talked about because yes. you don't sit down for a cup of coffee and say, well, what do we do if this or that happens? Yes. It's just not a casual conversation. And so it's really an opportunity to flush out some of these details. And in our case, it gave everyone a lot of comfort because by the time we found ourselves in the delivery room in the hospital, we had talked about these things and everybody kind of knew what to expect and so that put everybody in a very comfortable position there was zero awkwardness in it and the other thing is that nothing always goes exactly per plan and so i think it's really important for intended parents to understand what they're on the hook for what happens if the transfer doesn't work what happens if it works what happens if this or that and so that you can you can understand what are your responsibilities what your what are your financial responsibilities? What is the fallback plan? And so for us, the legal process has been really a full part of the process because it helped us uh, progress from these various milestones. Mm. Thank you. That's so true. And it is really, really important. The contract is not superficial at all. The contract, a, a well-drafted surrogacy contract really covers a lot of ground. And it sets out everyone's legal responsibilities, it sets out everyone's financial responsibilities, but it also is a, a really important part of making sure that everyone's aligned, that everyone is on the same page about how they want things to go. When there are problems with the pregnancy, everyone gets very stressed out and that contract can be critically important. And like during COVID, you know, it's been very, very stressful for families who were expecting during the pandemic and for the surrogates, for the, for the intended parents. And so the questions of, you know, what if the hospital won't let more than one person in? That should have been covered in the contract. There should already be a legal agreement in place or, you know, who gets to travel and who doesn't and what are the restrictions? Those things should all have been thought through, but also just having a good lawyer next to you means, you know, if you do hit something, we weren't planning on a pandemic. So, you know, if something comes up that was not planned, you know who to call. So, yeah. And honestly, the programs do a lot of that work as well. The good ones do. I know Northwest does that they remain engaged with the intended parents and the surrogates so that when um, I had at least one COVID crisis where you know, where we really work together, the, the program and I, with trying to help the family through it. Sam, we'll go to you next. That sounds like a perfect segue. And uh, it, it actually, it sounds like all three of you, um, Dr. Ryan, Sam, and Deb, you're 
all part of the process and it's good that you're part of the process from the very beginning, whether you're all sitting in a room, having a cup of coffee, having a, a you know, a not, not, not a very awkward conversation about all these things or not. Um, but Sam, let's talk about the relationship that a, uh, uh, you know, an organization like NSW might have with a, an IVF clinic and the patients um, and kind of walk us through what the experiences are like when you are working with two different organizations and forming your family. Yeah. So um, there's, there's, I'll, I'll add to that kind of the relationship with the surrogate, which I, I think uh, obviously uh, touched on earlier, but is also in a kind of equally important factor. So the, as far as our relationship with the surrogate, it really comes into play after the embryos have been created and when the surrogate becomes involved. So that's usually uh, right around the time that intended parents are signing a contract with their surrogate. Uh, they'll also uh, be uh, doing their screening at the fertility clinic as well as we will have already collected the medical records for that surrogate uh, and then typically sent them to uh, Pacific for them to review and approve of uh, as well. So the prior to that, uh, for the embryo creation process, again, that, that's really with the intended parents and the clinic directly. I, I think the best way to describe it as is, is that Pacific is really going to make the plan. They're going to map out all of this cycle. They're going to do all the medical work, but then we assist with everything else. So we're doing logistics, helping out with uh, travel uh, for the surrogate, uh, hotel arrangements, per diems are, in, in, uh, are paid, uh, medical insurance is in place. All of those things, the support work is, is what we do. Um, and then we're tying in the intended parents as, as we go. So um, obviously there's the important part of a match meeting, which uh, I'll, I'll let uh, Augustine maybe talk about that as far as their match with the surrogate, which is something that, that uh, we do. But then making sure that they're also up to date in combination with the clinic as far as how the medical process is going uh, and, and, uh, as well. So that, that coordination really does happen uh, between uh, our case managers and uh, the, the patient coordinators at the clinic. After uh, usually about 10 weeks, uh, the surrogate kind of graduates from the fertility clinic and uh, moves on to a normal obstetrician. And it kind of follows a more normal process from, a, I think, a medical perspective. Uh, but again, I'll let, Dr., I'll let Dr. Ryan comment more on that. Um, we're there the whole way, though, from before the family is matched with the surrogate till well after they return home with their baby. We're helping coordinate with the attorneys when, uh, when necessary um, uh, and uh, supporting families and surrogates when they have questions or issues or uh, anything else that might arise. Thank you. So that's perfect then to, to also ask Dr. Ryan. So Dr. Ryan, the, the baby making process when, um, you know, two male parents are, are your patients uh, so earlier you had mentioned, you know, you have the option of frozen or fresh eggs and that really piqued my interest. Cause I actually, I, I don't know. I didn't know that you could have the option of both, but you had mentioned advantages and disadvantages. Can we talk a little bit more about that? It depends on the IVF program in terms of which options are available. So some programs, um, have an egg bank. I'm going to say a small number of programs have an egg bank. Uh, most programs engage in what are called fresh cycles and or they will um, allow their intended parents to purchase eggs from independent freestanding egg banks. Our egg bank at PFC is services only our patients. So we do not ship eggs out. Uh, we recruit egg donors who uh, then we will um, have them go through a stimulation cycle. We will retrieve the eggs, freeze the eggs, and then they are part of our egg bank. Uh, and those eggs are only available to our patients. And we have actually a, a, a very active egg bank. And actually most of our intended parents choose eggs through the egg bank instead of choosing a donor who then does a fresh stimulation. Part of what happens if you want to choose a donor who does a fresh stimulation is that it typically will extend the timeline in terms of then when are the embryos ready because the egg donor has to let us know when she can actually do a cycle and then we need to do the stimulation and then the uh, retrieval to get the eggs and we need to coordinate that with the sperm and then finally we get to create the embryos. So that process of just that piece is two months right there if we're looking at a fresh cycle uh, from having the egg donor be on her pre-stim medications to then actually doing the stimulation. 
Whereas if the eggs are already in the bank and you decide, okay, this is the egg donor that I like and these are the eggs that I would like to purchase, we just go to the freezer with all the eggs and we create the embryos. So it really shortens the timeline, number one. And then as Augustine's mentioned, um, you know, you know exactly how many eggs you're getting. Now in a fresh stimulation in general, we can ballpark how many eggs we think we're going to get. And usually we're pretty much on par, but you know, things can happen. Could be that we get fewer, could be that we get more. The other piece has to do with sort of the finances of it, depending on what the intended parent or parents want to do. Uh, it may be sort of more economically efficient to choose a donor who does a fresh stimulation versus purchasing eggs from the bank. But I would say in general, most of our patients are purchasing eggs from the bank. And then we create the embryos. And then, like I said, most of our intended parents are doing chromosome testing on their embryos. And that is really, again, to sort of maximize the efficiencies of getting to a successful pregnancy as quickly as possible. Because, um, I don't know, maybe Sam or Augustine can speak to this piece, but my understanding is that typically, or, or Deborah, but typically most contracts with gestational carriers are with up to three transfers, and then either party will have the option of opting out of the contract. And so you want, on the medical side, we want to optimize every single try at a transfer, and we know we have three tries. So, you know, before people either start getting nervous about, is this the right gestational carrier for us? Is there something going on? Or should we continue working with her or not? Or do we start looking for a different gestational carrier? There's so much time and investment and emotional commitment that goes into a gestational carrier match that, you know, it's difficult to decide I'm going to have to start looking for a different gestational carrier. So... Part of these medical recommendations are really because it's not just the medical piece. Yes, we want you to get pregnant, but you know it's also dovetails into a whole other scaffolding that has to do with the infrastructure to get to a successful pregnancy. You mentioned um, chromosome testing, but what about uh, genetic testing and the recommendation of doing that and how does it affect uh, pregnancy rates? Well, okay, so there are different, there are different kinds of genetic tests. So um, the, both gamete sources, meaning egg donor and the sperm provider, will be tested to see if they are carriers for what are called single gene mutations or genetic diseases. So we're talking about things like cystic fibrosis, for example. In our program, yes, both gam gamete sources will be tested. And that is to look and see if they are both carriers for the same genetic mutation. Actually, what we'll do is we'll ask the intended parent to get screened first. And if he is positive for something, which most of us are, so that's not a surprise, if he is positive for something, then when they look at the egg donor registry in the egg bank, then we are going to say, do not choose an egg donor who is positive for the same genetic mutations that you're a carrier for. And that goes for sperm too. I know that, you know, I mean, for single women or lesbian women who come to us, we want them to get screened first before they go to the sperm bank and then purchase sperm. So that's one level of testing. That's a pre-screen. When we're talking about having the embryos, we are looking for chromosomal abnormalities. So that's different. And that's to look and see for things like Down syndrome. So this is looking for abnormalities in the embryo that are the result of mistakes that are made during fertilization that lead to either extra or missing chromosomes. And uh, typically chromosomally abnormal embryos either do not implant, so we get a negative pregnancy test result, or they miscarry. So we want to know ahead of time, we want to pre-screen ahead of time to take those embryos off of the table in terms of embryos that are eligible for transfer because we know that if there's an abnormality there, it's not gonna give us a live birth. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. And for those of you uh, who are joining us, um, we want you to ask the questions. We'll be opening it up to the audience or anyone joining us for questions very shortly here. You can send them through the chat. So Augustine, we'll go back to you and Ryan, and, and if you wanna share um, you know, a little bit more also about 
You mentioned earlier, I think, you know, you said you had a relationship with your gestational carrier. It sounded like, you know, the process, you were, it was full of support between PCP and also um, thought ahead in terms of the, the legal stuff. Um, and then, it, so it sounded like it was, it was a pretty pleasant process. I, I think uh, there's really something to be said about choosing an agency and a fertility clinic who are used to work together because there's a ton of stuff that happens in the background that as an intended parent, you don't even, you, you don't even get involved because the agency and the clinic are used to work together. They figure this out on their own. Sorry for the background as we have, a, we have an additional guest <laughs> into the table uh, after the nap. And, and that this really allows you as an intended parent to really focus on what matters and what is really under your responsibility. You're not passing paperwork around and, and emailing the agency to then tell the clinic this or that. They figure all of this out in the background. It's, it's a very comfortable situation to be in. So uh, again, a very personal choice. And we certainly have friends who say, oh, we have this small agency that's awesome. And these are the people we want to work with and great. But uh, there is something to be said about uh, choosing an agency and a, and, a, and a clinic who are used to working together. Maybe just a word on the chromosome testing and things like this. It's, it can be something that's impressive when you're not experienced and you know your friends, when you mention chromosome testing, your friends are certainly gonna imagine that you're gonna choose the color of your baby's eyes and the color of their hair and stuff like this. And really it's not that, it's really about viability of your embryo. And if Dr. Ryan, if I remember my trainings correctly, the vast majority of what gets screened out through these chromosome testings are non-viable embryos. So you, these embryos will not result to a successful life birth. And so really, you're, you're, uh, by not doing that, you're lowering your chances of having a successful transfer, first of all, but you're also significantly increasing the chances that you're going to have to have your GC go through this again. And, and really, that's unnecessary. And so for us, at least, the chromosome testing was a no-brainer because it, it, it just was a win-win for everyone. For us, because we have higher chances of successful transfer for the GC because she doesn't have to go through this again. And you know what you have to work with. So it can be a little impressive. But um, I also found that uh, PFC will find the right balance in giving you advice while respecting your choices and you can certainly do what you want but the pfc team will tell you it is our recommendation that you do that for this and that reason and and again that's a fairly comfortable position to be in because as an ip i'm not a geneticist i'm not a doctor i don't have a qualified opinion on these things and so i appreciate it being given advice what were some of your biggest challenges what was the hardest part if any you know, there's big decisions to be made. When you, when you choose an egg donor, it's a, it's a big decision. When you choose a gestational carrier, when you decide who's going to be the male donor, these are pretty foundational uh, decisions. We're big on nurture over nature, so we, we weren't like as focused about the genetic makeup of our child and we've thought of um, maybe we're more relaxed than maybe other IPs on, on this. These are, these are big decisions. Um, and then, you know, the whole legal process and the whole budgeting process, I mean, th these are things to really understand so you understand what you get into and be ready for it, understand the steps. But again, both the agency and PFC will, will educate you as an IP and give you a, a template schedule of what's gonna happen when and in what sequence. And, and so you, you kind of get edu educated along the way. We maybe had this sort of um, expectation that we needed to know everything up front before we pressed the start button. But in fact, that's not really necessary. You can trust the professionals who are here to help you to educate you along the way on what needs to happen and, and why. Honestly, it's been a, it's been a, it's not been a stressful process, believe it or not. It's, it's, it's been a very pleasant process, very exciting process. 
we've been cheering to the various milestones along the way and, and we felt very well taken care of. Um, so it's, it's, been, it's been easy. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to throw to, to Sam, Sam at Northwest, what, maybe like a, what are some of the biggest questions that you get from gay prospective parents? Yeah, I, I think that, that some of them is a question of success. Is like, how, will this actually work? Um, and the thing that, that I do tell families who are interested in our program is, is that uh, everybody who stays with the process and is open to using donors if they need them uh, is successful in having a baby. Um, so uh, it, it doesn't always work out as smoothly as, uh, as, as August and Ryan's experience, although that's always, always the hope. Um, and for most people, they, that's a, you know, they have a fairly similar experience. So uh, I think that's one of them. I think uh, understanding, because uh, we do talk a, a little bit with families before they get to, to uh, some families before they get to the clinic, uh, that, that uh, you know, the process for creating embryos, whether, you know, uh, a lot of them have questions about whether uh, they both can be genetic fathers. Um, we have a, a lot of questions about two embryo transfers uh, as well, um, which is, is uh, something that I think uh, Pacific and Northwest Surrogacy Center are relatively aligned on as far as a single embryo transfer policy. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll defer to Dr. Ryan on that particular issue, but um, uh, so then the budget is always, uh, you know, surrogacy is, uh, uh, in some cases, or, you know, it can be eye-wateringly expensive, um, and, uh, really figuring out what costs can be controlled and, uh, and, and the rest, uh, is, I think, uh, really important to a lot of our families as well. Thank you, Sam. As we wind down on time, uh, Deb, you had mentioned something earlier that I hadn't thought about, but you brought up COVID and and how it's been difficult for LGBTQ parents, you know, under under COVID and who are expecting. Um, maybe share with us, you know, some things that prospective parents can be thinking about or prepare for if you are planning to have uh, to build your family, you know, during this, this challenging time. I mean, honestly. I'm just trying to think. I don't think there have been any issues that have been specific for LGBTQ parents. I think it's just a stressful time. I mean, the fertility clinics, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine actually requested the fertility clinics stop engaging in activities to cause conceptions for a period of time. So everything got really slowed down. There were people who were planning their cycles. And again, particularly... I mean, that is a place where I guess it may somewhat disproportionately, and I don't even think so. I mean, anyone who's been trying to have children and they're ready to go, you know, to have a several month delay is very, very stressful. So there's been that issue with just not even being able to start. And then there's been um, some issues have come up around travel. I mean, I do custody work also, and I see it a lot in my custody cases. Everyone has their own interpretation of what it means to shelter in place and what amount of being out is and isn't safe. And so it's an area that's rife for conflict if a surrogate has a different sense of what is safe from what the intended parents have and sort of how much control the intended parents have over those issues. Um, you know, how do we make sure she's always wearing a mask? How do we make, you know, all of that? Um, and then for delivery, there's been um, a lot of the hospitals aren't allowing anyone in other than the woman who's delivering, which actually seems pretty horrifying to me, having delivered two babies myself. The idea of going through that without your partner there seems really shocking. But the, the issue we've had with surrogate deliveries is if you know, some of them will only allow her partner in and then neither of the parents are present in the delivery room. So who's going to make decisions for the baby? And so we've had to, um, and also it's just, it can be heartbreaking to miss your baby's birth, obviously. So there's been a whole series of issues there. And then for international intended parents, which um, certainly in the LGBTQ community, um, there are a lot of gay couples from other places where it's not so easy who come to California 
for their surrogacy journeys, and then they need to be able to take their babies home. And the U.S. State Department's not issuing passports, for example. So, you know, families are getting stranded in hotel rooms around the United States with newborns because they can't get them home because they don't have travel documents. So there's been a whole series of issues we've had to deal with. And um, yeah, you know, it's, it's actually been, I have to say it's been great. The agencies and the clinics and the lawyers have all been doing a really good job of communicating about how to solve all these issues. I feel like there's been a very, very high level of cooperation between um, all the professionals in the field to try to support families through this very stressful time. So last question for everyone, we'll start with you. So everyone answers, Sam, Dr. Ryan, then we'll end with Augustine. But it's just, uh, you know, just some last words or some advice for prospective gay parents. I would say that uh, choose reliable partners and also... You mean their personal partners, their intimate partners? Also, also uh, that, but I was thinking more specifically for surrogacy, <laughs> but that's also, I think, a solid piece of advice, Deb. I, I think the other thing that, that I would say is, is that uh, if you do that, you can really focus on the stuff that will probably make things work better, which is having a good, supportive, and communicative relationship with your surrogate. Um, when we see people who are happy in all of this stuff, uh, that's typically uh, uh, the scenario. Dr. Ryan. So I would say definitely your dreams can come true. Part of the soul searching is how do you want to make those dreams come about because they're definitely important decisions in how to bring together all the important components. Choosing the right professional partners to do it with is very important and an important key to success. And when I say success, I'm also talking about, you know, a smooth process and a hopefully relatively expeditious process. So not something that's going to take three years to get there. You know, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It will take, um, you know, good communication and some focused commitment, but um, that we are here to make it happen for those people who have this dream. I, I'm actually having trouble thinking of one thing to say. I mean, we've been in a gaby boom for, for, it feels like about a decade now, and it's um, really wonderful to see. And um, I guess the only thing I would say is that typically in my experience, at, certainly in California, where we have very good laws, we can make almost anything work legally if we know what your plan is in advance and get brought in early enough into the process. When the lawyers are an afterthought, things can get pretty rough. And I know with all of the medical expenses and the agency, like all of these expenses piling up, um, people often feel like, you know, and now we have to pay lawyers too. And, and all I will say is, because I also litigate, um, it is exponentially more expensive not to do things right legally um, than it is to do things right legally. So I just really encourage people. And again, if you have a best friend, you know, whatever your plan is, we can figure out how to make it work. But um, yeah, I, you know, don't forget the lawyers. <laughs> um, and then enjoy. I mean, it really is, it's incredible for me, who's been watching this movie for, like I say, about 30 years to see we, you know, there's no gay pride parade this year, but um, you know, the family contingent you know, has gone from, you know, 10 people to 500. And it's really, it just, it brings me a lot of joy. So carry on. And then Augustine, were you able to add your, your advice for gay prospective parents? You know, um, I would echo what has been said is um, if, if you want a child, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. It will work. And do things in the right order with the right people. It's important to kind of play it by the book. I think that cutting corners is never a good option in, in 
in this type of project. So take time to choose the right clinic, the right agency. Uh, to Sam's point, you know, you're, there's an element of impatience, but you know, sometimes if it takes another month or two to do things right, it's way, no question, the best option than trying to rush things and, and not do things in the right order. We're, as gay men, we're lucky to be probably one of the, well, not probably, we are the first generation to really be able to go through this process fairly smoothly. And uh, so it's an option that's available to you. And you will bring your baby home and you will be their parent. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful experience. Thank you, Augustine. And I just realized that we did have a question. I know Dr. Ryan has to go in a couple of minutes, but I think this question is for you before you leave. Uh, you mentioned using PGT testing to help determine which embryos to transfer into a surrogate. How do the number of cells in an embryo weigh into the decision? Um, well, so the kind of testing that we do is done on blastocyst embryos. So the embryos have to fully develop to what's called the blastocyst stage. That means that they grow in the lab for five, six, or seven days. And then they have to meet certain developmental landmarks in terms of being a well-developed blastocyst as defined by the embryology staff. If the embryo does not make it to that stage, it's not going to be biopsied. It's not an embryo that we get to work with because the fact that it does not get to that stage means that it's letting us know it's not destined to lead to a, a live birth, a healthy pregnancy. So it's got to meet those landmarks, those developmental landmarks of getting to be a blastocyst. Then it's a candidate to be biopsied. We biopsy what's called the trophectoderm, and then we freeze the embryo. The biopsy gets sent off to the genetics lab and then we wait two weeks for the result. Thank you. Then I want to thank everyone. Thank our incredible panelists, Deb, Sam, Dr. Ryan, Augustine, and Ryan, and, and your beautiful baby. Thank you for saying hello. <laughs> that was um, a highlight of this talk. And thank you, everyone, for joining us here for our special program. If you have any questions, please reach out to 415-834-3095. Uh, you can call PFC, and that is 415-834-3095. Thank you, everyone, this evening, and good luck to anyone who is going to try for a baby soon. I think uh, it, it's uh, what Augustine says, you know, when the agencies work together, that's what makes the process easier, and it looks like we've got a great team here between Northwest Surrogacy Center, uh, Deb Wald, and also Pacific Fertility Center. Happy Pride to everyone, and thanks for having me. I'll see you all uh, sometime soon, I hope. Bye. Pride, Michelle. Thanks, Michelle. Bye-bye.